0: a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is the first psalm that actually has a biographical note that clues us in what was going on in David's life when he wrote it. It recounts the events in 2 Samuel, verses 15 and 16, some of which we just read together, that gives us the background. Now, perhaps when you read something as specific as David wrote this when he was fleeing from his son, Maybe such specificity would make you think, well, that was David's. I don't see how it could possibly apply to me. Actually, the exact opposite is true. The original audience, which would be the people of Israel, would have uh, used this psalm in one of two ways. They would have either used it as a national psalm when they all came together and sang it or read it in order to pray for the safety of their king so that the nation would prosper, Or, it may have been that David was writing this as, you could say, the ideal everyman. As in, the ideal Israelite. This is how a person of faith should respond to trials. And so really, I think it's the latter. And rather than making this applicable only to David, the title gives it a wonderful concreteness. It's not just vague and nebulous But we're talking about real fear, real danger, real distress, and really real faith. What we see here is what genuine faith looks like when it's in distress. Is that what you want? All of us have distress. Whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, we have real distress in our life. Do you want to respond with genuine faith? Well, here we have a chance, a little snapshot for us to see what genuine faith looks like when it's in distress. The structure is very simple. I just want you to look at how it breaks up. It basically breaks into three different parts. Verses 1 and 2, I would say that there's a time element to each of them. Verses 1 and 2, it is David's present distress. This is the situation that he is in right now or at the time that he writes this. Verses three through six recalls past deliverances where he brings to mind how God has stepped in and delivered him. And then verses seven and eight is a prayer for future deliverance. So you have the past or you have the present distress, the past way that God has stepped into David's life. And then the future, where he latches on and says, this is what I think God is going to do. This is what I'm asking him to do. And what a chance for us to see what genuine faith looks like in distress. So let's look at the uh, the present section, the present distress, verses 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, how my adversaries or my enemies have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. You know, it is important for us to note that as the people of God, distress and troubles are going to come upon us. We may say, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Jesus is supposed to make my life better. No, people who love God have very, very real problems. David was not exempt. Nor will you and I be. Some of David's problems were recorded in the passages that we read. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Talk about problems. David emphasizes the overwhelming nature of his problems by the repetition of the word. If you want to look at your scriptures, many, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. The poetry here identifies who his foes or his enemies or his adversaries are. They are those, it says, who are rising up against, and what is the next word? Me. You know, that's what puts the sting in a lot of distressing personal situations. When people are attacking not just you, it's not that it is something impersonal, or it's not something impersonal, it's that they are attacking you. David says they're rising up against me. It's the personal part of distress that stings so badly. His enemies are taunting him. When they say it says of my soul. It's interesting that they use that word. It's not that they're just saying about David. They're saying it about his soul. You know, they are insinuating that it is not just that his physical life is in danger. But his spiritual self is in danger too. They are taunting him and saying There is no help for you, David, either in this life or the next. God has turned on you, David, because of your sins. In our reading, Shimei suggested this. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. He said, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. In other words, they are saying there is no Deliverance or salvation for him in God. That's what these people are saying. They're saying, David, your soul is in danger. You're going to die. And not only that, God is against you because of the evil that you have done. And they're saying in essence, David, you will never be happy or prosperous again. And then God is going to let you die in your troubles. And he'll get you in the afterlife. They are saying of my soul. There is no salvation for you in God. That's what salvation is. Or deliverance. Welfare. Happiness. Prosperity. And deliverance in the end. Distress gets personal when people suggest. That the mess that you're in. Is your fault. And that God is not for you anymore now the truth is the first part there that it's your fault that you have gotten yourself into this mess may or may not be true it's true that some of this was David's fault because of his sin with Bathsheba and God said the sword will never leave your house but they also suggest that God is no longer with you and that part is certainly not true You know, one of the hardest times in my life was when some guys at work, I'm a a supervisor of preload ship at UPS, some guys um, told me that because of the accountability that I had been holding them to, that they were going to get rid of me by slandering me. And they did. And my authorities at least partially believed them, at least enough not to get my back, and essentially said, you know what? This may or may not be true. Uh, but you know, we're, we don't want to put up with this anymore. So we're moving you to another part of the operation. And my stomach hurt. I would go to bed at night not able to sleep because of the personal nature of these attacks. My manager even pointed out that they had mocked my beliefs in the course of this. They had intact my integrity. And I think that was the thing that stung so bad. And this just wasn't the usual management union thing. It's the fact that they had attacked me. And I had taken a personal interest in their lives over and above the job. And they attacked the thing that was dearest to me. And since we're in New England, I'll say that was wicked hard. But David, despite this present distress in verses 1 and 2, moves on to recall his past deliverances. Let's look at it. He says in verse 3, but you O Lord are a shield about me my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. You know, here the psalmist emphatically denies his enemy's spin without one word in verse 3. But he says, On the contrary, God is not abandoning me or against me, but he is not my adversary, my enemy, my judge. He is my shield. In other words, my protector. And David was picturing. A uh, a small, a very valuable item in a warrior's um, arsenal. His shield. It was a small, round thing, and it was covered with leather, stretched tight. And it would sometimes they would douse it in water to keep it supple and put out fiery darts. And that's what David was picturing. God puts out these snares that they are throwing at me. He's my shield, my protector, and he says, "My glory in the one who lifts my head. He is my protector." and he is my promoter. They are saying he will have nothing to do with me. He says, oh no, he is going to put me forward. When he says that God is my glory, now what he may be referring to is God as the object of his praise. In other words, God is the one that I glorify, my glory, the one that I glorify, the one that I praise. But I think that actually my glory is related to the next phrase, the one who lifts my head. And in Scripture, when somebody lifts someone's head, that means to restore their honor. I think what David is saying is that God is my glory in the sense that God is the source of my honor. In other words, the one where my glory comes from. My glory. God is the one who gives me my honor. Even though David, we read, left Jerusalem barefoot, and weeping, throwing dust over his head. In 2 Samuel 15, he believes that God is going to restore his honor. He left in ignominious circumstances, but he believes that God will lift up his head. You know, David really is thinking of his reputation here. Nothing is worse than the awful feeling of a damaged reputation. Have you ever done something, said something, that was taken a certain way and it started to be widely known and all of a sudden there's buzz and people are talking about you and it's clear that your reputation has taken a hit whether there's something to it or not how does that make you feel? I, I just have this this sense of heaviness and sometimes in the course of the day you're just feeling heavy and you're just like, it's kind of like waking up from a bad dream where you wake up here and you're thinking, oh, good, it was a dream. You know, you have that that dread over you, except it's not a dream. It's real and your reputation has suffered. You know, you look at some of these high-profile men who have fallen into moral sins and their career is essentially over. And that, the way that that, that, Feels, and I know that you know what I'm talking about. There's that pit in your stomach. And your mind, you're exhausted because you're thinking about how you can vindicate yourself. What should I have said? Or what would I have done different? Or, or what can I say to, to fix this? To amend the problem? And all of your energies are put into it. And all of that is because of your reputation. But really what you should be thinking is, especially if it is unjust, my reputation is safe in God's hands. He is the source of your glory. He can take care of you. If you need to be vindicated because whoever it was was unjust, He is the source of your glory and the lifter up of your head. He will restore you in due time. If not in this life, in the next. But He will do it. In verses 4 through 6, David recalls some examples of God's deliverance when he was on the run. So here he is running from Absalom, and he says that I was crying out to the Lord with my voice. You know, there's a real uh contrast in David's situation here. He says that he was crying to the Lord with his voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Here is David with all his household um, on the run. And in harsh circumstances, in fear of his life. It says, but I was crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. So there's David in despair and fear, you know, in the rough hills of Judea. And there is God on his holy mountain, enthroned, ethereal, and praised. And it says that despite the disparity of their circumstances, he Answered me. God hears. Despite the very literal, real danger, danger, David is not exaggerating when he says tens of thousands of people have set themselves against me round about. Despite the very literal dangers surrounding him, David says, I slept in peace. Isn't that remarkable? And he acknowledges that the only reason That he is able to get up, in verse 5, to awake. is because the Lord sustains him. You know, in times of distress, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, in times of distress, there are times where you very literally don't want to get out of bed. Because of what you're going to face. This is very, very painful. But it is a tremendous opportunity for us Because it is that time where we can find out what it means to have the Lord sustain us. To sustain means that we can lean on Him for support, as if we are wounded. It means that uh, He supports us. That the only reason that you can crawl out of bed in this time of distress and dread is because you know that God is there for you to lean on. So we have seen his present distress, his enemies saying such things. We see how he remembers past deliverances in verses 3 through 6. And now we see his cry for future deliverance. This is what faith does. Faith may find itself in distressing situations, but faith calls to mind how God has worked for you in the past, and then faith calls on God for future deliverance. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. David's call for God here in verse 7 to arise Recall something back in verse 1. Remember how it says, uh, excuse me, yes, in verse 1, many are rising against him. He says, okay, they are rising against me. You rise up, God. Remember how his foes concluded that there is no deliverance or salvation for him and God? Look how he takes that word and uses it. Arise, O Lord, save me. And then in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. So he says, you say there's no salvation for me. You wait. Save me, God. Salvation is from you, O Lord. And so he takes their very language and uses it in his prayer. We've said that verse 7 is looking at a call for God's future deliverance. So I was kind of taken aback when uh, the shift in in verse 7, where it says, for you have smitten all my enemies, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. So he's calling on God to arise, and if God hasn't done it yet and he's praying for him, it's something that he's asking God to do in the near future. But all of a sudden he says, God, you've done this already. You have smitten. You have done this. What's going on there? I was a little bit confused. Is David in the past again? Is all of a sudden he recalling what God's done in the past? You know, really what I think is happening here is that it's still something that's going to happen in the future. But David is so sure that God is going to do it that he talks of it as if it's already been done. That is his confidence. So sure that God's going to do it in the future that he speaks of it as if God has already granted his request. What is David asking here? Pretty fearsome, isn't it? Hit my enemies in the face, shatter their teeth. What he wants here is his enemies to be humiliated and incapacitated, yo. Know, there, every culture. There's no culture in which getting hit in the face is a is a uh, an honorable thing, right? It's always an insult. And he is saying they have insulted me, especially as Israel's king. I want you to humiliate them, Lord. And when he says to smash their teeth, he is thinking of them as ravenous beasts like the lion and the bear that he killed. He wants their teeth. He has in mind a helpless and frustrated animal. It's like a declawed cat. You know? Can't rip up the furniture. It's like a lion with no teeth. A toothless, frustrated carnivore. You know, really, David can name some examples where God had done just that. You think about Goliath as a cursing, blaspheming enemy that probably lived long enough to see a little boy, a teenager, standing over him with his sword. What humiliation. He was probably glad he didn't get home. You had uh, Saul, you know, who exalted himself, where he was humiliated and made helpless. You had Nabal, that foolish man, where he was humiliated by God. You had Michael, who mocked David, who never had children again. All of these ways that God did exactly that to David's enemies. Now, a word on cursing in prayers. You know, does it make you a little bit, uh, could you imagine yourself praying this against somebody? You know, that may make you a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Remember a few things. First of all, this is not over trivial matters. This is not over, um, you know, praying imprecations on anybody who crosses you. But this is when God's glory is at stake. That you can pray, this is serious stuff. And it also is against people who hate you for your faith. And I think that includes Satan. You know, we can pray that God will humiliate Satan and that he will make him frustrated and powerless against us. Your prayer should be moral indignation, not personal vengeance. This isn't about you, and it's hard to keep ourselves out of these situations. But it's about God's glory. God's plan is at stake. David is wanting, in verse 8, the faithful to take away one major weighty lesson. And it's found in the first part of verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you don't take anything else out of this message, remember that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. David expresses this in the Hebrew language as emphatic As he possibly can. Literally, to Yahweh alone is help. That's the same prayer that in Revelation... The great multitude from every nation... Is going to be singing. John says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude... That no one could number from every nation... From all tribes and peoples and languages... Standing before the throne and before the Lamb... Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands... And crying out with a loud voice... Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Salvation belongs to our God. We can pray that in our distress and we will be singing that to him when he does it. He encourages the people of Israel to pray, your blessing be upon your people so that they can share in it. In this case, God is going to bless his people by destroying the enemies of the king. And in order for us to be blessed by God, In order for his people to be blessed, you have to have aligned yourself with God's purposes. You see, David, who was the rightful king, was being attacked. And so, when he prayed God's blessing upon his people, that means that somebody had to get destroyed in order for God's plan to continue to happen. And so, the rule of thumb for us is, are we aligning ourselves with God's plan? Are we keeping ourselves out of this? Are we seeking to bring him glory? And so, as we wrap up here, without question, you and I, as faithful people of God, are going to find ourselves in distress. And, you know, initially in this message, I had listed, you know, different situations that people might find themselves in. A young mother is in this kind of distress. And then I thought, that's really unnecessary. Because you know what your distress is. What is the biggest thing on your radar? What is the thing that is distressing you the most? What is the biggest danger that you find yourself in? Physically, emotionally, or psychologically? You know, for a soldier in Iraq, and we have many who know people serving or have served, their danger may be extremely physical. And they can pray this. There are those of you who are under relationship stress. You can pray this. What is your situation? You know, to be agitated is my natural response. When I find myself in danger or distress, I get worked up. And everyone can tell I'm agitated. Something is wrong. I think that is only natural. But we have to stop that. You have to stop that. That is your fear speaking to you, not your faith. And your fear cripples you. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. If you are trembling before God and have fear in front of God, it is because you do not know the love of Christ. If you knew the love of Christ, you would not be afraid of God because he is your father and not your judge. When you are in a situation and you are bent out of shape, you are agitated, you, you're stressed. You're getting ulcers. Things are happening to your body because of the way your physical and psychological state. That is your fear crippling you. And if you keep it long enough, it will kill you. But it doesn't have to be that way. We cannot be counseled by our fears. Genuine faith responds instead by calling, recalling God's past mercies, God's past deliverances. How has God delivered you in the past when you called on him? It's a good exercise to think about that. How did God restore you back to welfare and happiness? He certainly did that at our salvation, didn't he? That is the major deliverance that he has given to us who know him. But also just in your life. You know, earlier I mentioned a situation at work. In moving me to a different part of the operation, God put me in a new and better situation with a boss that covers my back and thankfully with people that I am over who respect me and have allowed me to have input in their lives. Even the manager who moved me has publicly praised me and declared the malicious men as, and he used a little bit stronger languages, but essentially scumbags. That was my past mercy, where God took a situation that humbled me and hurt me, and I think I took the lesson that I need to and then he took my reputation, and he did with it what he wanted to. It's a good exercise to remember how God has stepped into your life, and I encourage you to do that. Recall past deliverances. And then after you recall those past mercies, including your salvation, what do you do? You call on God to act on your behalf again, confident that you are one of his own and that in asking him to bless you, he is getting glory to himself and advancing his purposes in the world. That is what genuine faith looks like in distress. Father, we thank you that you are this kind of God to us, that we can call upon you in our time of trouble and that you will hear us. Lord, I pray now that you would help us to be a people who respond with genuine faith in our time of distress. or that above all, that we would entrust our reputation to you and that our concern would be your glory. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name.